Good morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are with us here today, that you are with us now, and we pray as you draw near and as we draw near to you, that you will be with us and you will speak to us through the, this passage and through, through my words. Amen. Wash your hands. It sounds like this was written for people going through coronavirus. And it is a useful illustration because today's passage is about holiness and sin, which are a bit like infection. In, with coronavirus, one person is infected, another doesn't want to be, so they wash their hands, they practice social distancing. Holiness is like saying God is free of infection, and sin is like saying we are infected. So we have to wash our we have to keep our distance, and symbolically we have to wash our hands. Sin creates distance between us and God, just like coronavirus uh, creates distance between each other. This passage is about how that gap, that distance, can be bridged. It's about what it takes from God and what it takes from us to bridge the gap created by sin. The passage is also about humility. And we know about humility because coronavirus has humbled us all. Everything we are used to came crashing to a grinding halt a couple of months ago. Whatever and whoever we are, we are all, from the greatest to the least, we are all reduced, humbled to the status of virus carrier or potential virus carrier. And we are forced to humble ourselves by keeping distance, by wearing face coverings, and by stopping our normal life. So, holiness, sin, and humility. Th um, these are three um, pieces of Christian jargon, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time just unpacking them so that we can have them out with us as we go through the passage. Holiness is just a way of saying that we are not the same as God. God is God, and we're not. We know that. But we don't easily grasp just how massively different God is. The prophet Isaiah from the Bible was privileged to see a vision of God, and he got it. Uh, chapter 6, verse 5. Woe to me, I cried, Isaiah cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King the Lord Almighty. Now I try to come up with illustrations of how different we are from God. And the best I could do was this. Think of a person, a man or a woman, and think of the shadow they cast. Now the person represents God, and the shadow represents us. We are no more like God than a shadow is like the person who casts it. Think about that for a moment. God is, well, God. Now there are many differences between us and God. Power, God is powerful. Size, God is big. Age, God is old. Wisdom, God is wise. But the most important is what we call sin. Sin is when we think, say or do stuff that is opposed to God, that is not like him, that does not reflect his love, his kindness, his gentleness, his wisdom, his justice, his concern for the poor and disadvantaged. We are so used to sin that we regard it as normal. We cannot imagine someone sinless. And so we downplay its importance, we shrug it off, and we say, no one's perfect. Yet it matters enormously to God. 
When we talk about God as friend or as daddy, which we can for reasons we will come to, we forget, or it's easy to forget, that God is absolutely pure, absolutely sinless, utterly perfect and without flaws. And it's easy to forget that sin matters so much that, it, that if we come too close to God, we will die because of our sin. The third term is humility, and I don't really need to explain that because we're using it in its everyday English meaning. Humility is the correct response to God's holiness and our sin. Recognising God's difference, recognising our disobedience, recognising that it matters. And almost all of James's letter is about humility in one way or another. Much of it is very practical, how to be humble in everyday situations. One example is verses 11 and 12 from our reading. Those verses say that making slanderous judgmental accusations against fellow believers is neither a humble nor a wise thing to do. And yet, in spite of James's letter, Christians, Bible-believing Christians, continue to do it 2,000 years later. And I'm not particularly thinking of our church, um, but many Christians around the world are particularly nasty to each other. And it brings both Christ and the church massively into disrepute. I guess Christians are tempted to think that because we have the word of God, we know best. But that's just pride. It's not humility. Now, our central text today, verses 7 to 10, gives four key ways in which James commands us to humble ourselves before God. Firstly, we commit to submit to God, to follow his path, not our own. Now, the word translated submit here is rather stronger, a bit more active than the English word submit which is quite passive. This word, this Greek word, uh, means something more like enlist in God's army. It means we are committing both to learn from, from God and to do what he says. In Lee's talk, it's more like Mary, who actively wanted to learn from Mr Christ, than it is like the thumb, which ended up passively submitting to the other thumb. Secondly, we draw near to him, to God. We submit to being near to God. We submit to letting him influence us as he comes near us. Thirdly, we purify ourselves. We confess our sins and we seek to match our behaviour to God's standards. And fourthly, these four ways we uh, humble ourselves before God, as James says, fourthly, we weep, we mourn and we wail, expressing our humility directly to God. Now, there's a particular order to James's instructions. And it shows us what we call God's grace at work. Now, verse six from last week, but it's just before our passage, says he gives us more grace. And that's really important to this text. Grace, another piece of Christian jargon, it means a free gift from God. We can draw near to God before we have purified ourselves. Now, isn't that the wrong way round? You would expect, remembering what I said at the beginning, that we would only be allowed to draw near after we were purified from our sin. But the point about grace is that, quite remarkably, God freely forgives our sins before we do anything about them. We commit to follow him, and we make the first move towards him, we draw near to him, and he will draw near to us. That's all it takes. Now, going back to what I said at the beginning, that is far more remarkable than it sounds. Now, we need to realise how remarkable it is because otherwise the rest of the text won't make sense. It's remarkable because God is God and we are not, as I said at the beginning. 
And if you don't have a high view of God and a view of the seriousness of sin, none of the rest of this text is going to make a lot of sense. Now we know that this ability to draw near to God is remarkable because the Bible tells us that the only way it could happen is because Christ died for us on the cross. Forgiving us is not cheap for God. God's own son nailed to a cross so you and I can draw near to God. This is what I mean when I say that sin matters. It matters so much that God himself, the immortal God, became a human being and then died a shameful death, a sinner's death, so we could be forgiven of our sins. To introduce yet more Christian jargon, this is called justification. It's the process by which we, though we are sinful, though we are not worthy, the process by which we are brought into right standing with God, um, saved, moved from death to life, going to heaven, not, not hell. Now we believe, this church believes, the Bible teaches in justification by grace. It is not our own works, our own efforts that earn our right standing with God. It is the grace, the gift of God. We cannot earn our salvation. He gives it to us as a free gift. Now there's one last piece of Christian jargon. I'm sorry about all this jargon. This really is the last. Because this text is not really about justification. It is about sanctification. Now, justification, I said, is about our legal standing before God. It's are we allowed to come into his presence. Being justified doesn't change our sin. It just changes how God looks at it. Sanctification, on the other hand, is about actually making us better. Making us less sinful and more like God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control and the rest. And it's worth it. James's big point throughout this chapter is that the wisdom he wrote about in chapter 3 only comes to us through a process of humility and sanctification. Notice again, justification comes before sanctification. In fact, justification happens straight away, the instant we believe, whereas sanctification is an ongoing process. Sanctification happens slowly, day by day, week by week, year by year, and it keeps on happening until we die. But like justification, sanctification also happens by grace. We cannot do it on our own. It is God's gift to us. But also like justification, there is a role for us. We have to take the initiative, and you can see that again in the order of James's instructions. We draw near, we purify ourselves, we weep, we wail, and then, in verse 10, he will lift us up. But unlike justification, our role in sanctification is genuinely hard work. A key point is that where sanctification is concerned, the more effort we put in, the more grace we will receive. As Alec Mottier writes in his commentary on James, the benefits of grace and more grace are ours along the road of obedience and more obedience. The God who says, here is my grace to receive, says in the same breath, here are my commands to obey. And these commands are not easy. They remind us that following God is a hard journey. As Jesus put it in Matthew 16, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now all of James's four instructions are necessary if we are to receive God's gift of sanctification, God's gift of growing more and more like him. Remember, firstly, we have to commit ourselves to God. 
then we have to draw near to him. Sanctification will not happen if we do not regularly submit to spending time with God. And then we need, to, we need as verse 8 says, we need to purify ourselves. Purify ourselves outside, as in the washing of hands, and inside, we need to purify ourselves from, as James says, our double-minded thoughts. Now, I have wrestled with, in preparation, with whether this is about confessing our sins, or it's about trying not to sin. And after some thought, I've come to the conclusion that it's about both. John says, in chapter 1 of the first epistle, 1 John, he says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and will purify us from all unrighteousness. And this, and you can see a mirror here, uh, uh, see that reflected in this text as, as um, James talks about cleansing and purifying. Um, so this is about using some form of confession to somehow cleanse, cleanse us. John, but on the other hand, notice that John has God doing the cleansing, whereas James has us doing the purifying. And knowing from earlier in the letter how James thinks, it would be inconceivable to James for us to confess our sins, but not to try to do something about them, not to, sin, not to try to sin less in the future. Now this is where we must be honest and real with ourselves, and we must remember that God has very high standards. We all like to judge ourselves by more relaxed standards than we judge others. But Jesus described God's standards in his famous Sermon on the Mount, that's Matthew chapters 5 to 7. Blessed are the meek, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. If you are angry with someone, it's like murdering them in your heart. Now take a moment to pause and to reflect. Look at yourself, firstly, look at yourself as others see you. And think back over the last few days. Have you modelled what Jesus taught? in the way you deal with others. Lockdown is stressful. Have you been patient, kind, gentle, forgiving, even when others have not? Not, not all the time, maybe? Me neither. Have you been moany, complaining, argumentative? Yeah, I know that. I've been there too. God is not condemning us. But he is asking us to recognise and to repent of our lack of love to seek his help to do better. And secondly, look at yourself as God sees you. Look at yourself inside. What about your thought life? James talks about double-minded people, and we all think thoughts sometimes that, to be honest, we'd rather others didn't know about. Reflect for a moment on your thought life. Is there anything there to repent of? Turn from it now. Reject it. Ask God for help. This is humility, to admit to God that our thoughts, the most intimate thing we have, the thing perhaps that speaks most clearly to us of our own identity, that our thoughts are not good enough for God, and to admit to God and to ourselves that we need God's help, because we want to think his thoughts, not our own. Now you might think that having seriously and thoughtfully searched our hearts, our minds, our lifestyle, repented and changed what we can, that would be it. God would shower us with the blessings I talked about. But that's not how it works. God's standards are impossibly high. And we can't meet them. And so 
James says, we get to the point of crying out in utter frustration. We weep, we wail, we mourn. We prostrate ourselves before God, utterly defeated by our weakness, by our inability to meet his standards. We reach the end of ourselves. There is nothing more we can give. And it's at this point, when we've humbled ourselves completely before our God, when we have finally and fully realised that we cannot do this on our own, when we have died to ourselves, it is at this point that God is able to do his best work in us. He is able to lift us up, to sanctify us. Christ comes to live in us and to give us the wisdom, the love, the self-control, the patience, the gentleness, the kindness, which are Christ's alone to give, the sort that can only come when Christ himself comes to dwell in us. And this is just as God lifted Jesus up, because Jesus himself went through this. Philippians 2 describes it very clearly, and it says Jesus humbled himself, firstly by becoming human and then by becoming obedient to death. And it then says, therefore God exalted him, lifted him up to the highest place. And where Jesus went, we can follow, if we humble ourselves, as Jesus did. This is tough stuff. No one said being a Christian would be easy, and Jesus certainly didn't. The good news is that God will lead us through this at a pace we can cope with. You might draw near to him, confess everything you can think of, cry out from within your heart and, and, you might, and be lifted up and blessed by God. Only later to find that God is challenging you to draw even nearer to him, go even deeper, bring new areas of your life to him, cry out from new depths of your heart. And he's calling you to do that because he knows that if you do that he can and he will bring new blessing to you. We can always go deeper. God is always more God, more godly, more divine, more perfect, more glorious than any of us can imagine. And as Paul found, God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. So my message today is this. Go deeper with God than you are used to going. If you have not yet received the once for all gift that is justification, of being saved, of moving from death to life, then today would be a very good day to make that decision, to submit to God for the first time, to draw near to him, and receive the gift of true life as he draws near to you. But if, like the people James addressed his letter to, you have already made that decision, maybe it was yesterday, maybe it was many years ago, my message today is don't be complacent, go deeper. Let us all go deeper. Let us recognise that God is more different from us, holier than we thought possible. Let us stand or sit or kneel in awe and reverence of the holy God of the universe. And then, by the power of Christ's love for us and his death, let us draw near to him, nearer perhaps than we've dared to go before. Let us let him Show us more of our sin than ever before. Let us cry out to him from deeper in our hearts, deeper in our souls than we've ever done so before. Let us come 
right to the absolute uttermost end of ourselves. Weep. Let us weep, wail and mourn. Let us change our laughter to mourning and our joy to gloom. Let us, as James says, let us humble ourselves, ourselves before the Lord and he will lift us up. And this is my prayer, Lord, for everyone who hears this. Help us, Lord Jesus, through this journey with you. Draw near to each of us as we draw near to you. Show us our sins, Lord. Draw us into realising how much we depend on you. And as we reach the end of ourselves and as we cry out to you from the absolute bottom of our hearts, Lord, honour your promise to lift us up. Bless us, Lord, with your strength that we might serve, honour and glorify you better than we ever thought we could. Amen.